Blood and Wine is the second and final expansion to The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt and launched in May of 2016 to critical acclaim. The expansion also offers upwards of 30 hours in new content for the player to enjoy, all of which has the same charm and personal flair and care that made all of us fall in love with the core game way back when. Now, while Hearts of Stone was a much more narrative experience, an experience meant to take you on an emotional roller coaster ride over its 10 hours, Blood and Wine is a gameplay focused expansion. Blood and Wine honestly offers some of the best boss battles in the entire franchise. Honestly, I complained a lot about the combat in my initial critique of The Witcher 3. I thought by the end of the core game, all of the combat got repetitive and the bosses just had the same moves as the lower level enemies and it was really easy to read and dodge. It was just repetitive and boring. But Blood and Wine throws you at many new enemy types, whether you're talking about vampires or the different plant based enemies that you'll encounter. They all have different move sets, different timings, and different mechanics that you have to learn in order to take them down reliably. And when you pair that with the higher levels, it creates a much more engaging and interesting combat system and experience than you would find in the core game or in Hearts of Stone. Now this isn't to say that the narrative was completely neglected, quite the opposite. I think they focused so much on trying to send Geralt off right and resolve everything and have him be in this peaceful mood and have all these characters from the base game show up at the very end that it actually came back to bite them. And the pacing of this expansion is very, very odd. And it's on one hand very forced and energetic and on the other side, they seem to want you to take your time and enjoy this final experience expansion as opposed to being incredibly stressed out by it. It's a little strange and of course we'll go into all of this in more detail as we go on. But that's about all I can get into, especially in terms of narrative, without getting into spoilers. So if you haven't played this expansion yet and are able to, pause the video, go play it. I'll be here in a week or two when you finish it, I promise, and then we can watch it and agree or disagree on our interpretations of it. But if you have the chance to play it, you absolutely should, and I will definitely spoil every aspect of the DLC in this video. So this is your warning. Click away. Blah, blah, blah. But with all that said, let's get into it. As I previously said, I don't believe that the narrative is the central focus for Blood and Wine, but I do think that CD Projekt Red tried to give us something that was at least engaging enough to give us an excuse to go out and explore the new land of Toussaint that they give us. Blood and Wine actually starts out very similar to how Hearts of Stone started out. Geralt will take a contract from a stranger and he's tasked with killing some sort of beast and of course it ends up not being anywhere near as simple as that as you get further and further into the DLC. Same basic formula, it works, I'm not complaining about it, but there are similarities. The contract that you are asked to take on has been submitted by the Duchess of Toussaint, Anna Henrietta, and basically she's asking you to kill this mysterious beast that's tormenting her duchy and has already killed two of her most esteemed knights. Naturally, you accept the offer, and then when Geralt arrives in Toussaint, you can immediately see a difference in Toussaint versus the base game. 
everything in this DLC is about a change in culture. It's almost like a different world or game entirely. Everything is incredibly vivid. It's bright. The knights are wearing gaudy armor with lots of gold and really fine finishes to everything. It's all very, very beautiful, but it isn't all exactly what it seems to be. Now, right as the DLC opens up, Geralt and the player see a giant attacking a singular knight and vice versa off in the distance, and you can go and help defeat this giant. This is the first point in this DLC where they throw at you a larger enemy that has its own giant health bar, practically a mini boss battle, and these will be all over the place as you go through the DLC. Now, after reading many comment sections and forum posts, I've seen many people argue that they either love this new approach to your typical enemy in Toussaint, or they absolutely hate it. Essentially, it's a shift from smaller sort of fodder enemies that you see all over the place, like wolves or ghouls that you have to fight in large numbers that add the difficulty in that way, and it shifts that to smaller, or perhaps you could argue larger encounters with a single singular enemy which is much more difficult and requires more precision and practice and possibly multiple attempts if you're playing on higher levels. Now we'll talk more about this later on when we get into gameplay and combat changes, but as for right now I just want to point it out because it's going to act as we go through the DLC as a very important vessel for communicating the story where they'll have a large boss battle and then after that you can communicate a message through that battle. It's really well done and it's something that I think was really missing in the base game and Hearts of Stone. After this fight, Geralt begins his investigation by looking into the recent murder of a third knight, at which point he realizes that a fourth knight is soon going to be in danger as well. Now, of course, this happens to be realized in the middle of a party that Toussaint throws, apparently annually, and that the knight in question is dressed up as a bunny hiding in a greenhouse. It's apparently some sort of tradition. Geralt is just as confused by it as the player. So after a quick riddle, you race to the greenhouse to find the dead body of the fourth knight laying on the ground with a monster beast something or other leering over top of him. After a quick chase and fight scene, we are introduced to a character by the name of Regis, who gets stabbed through the heart but seems to be just fine and dandy, walks it off, and convinces that beast we just fought to go away somehow. Now, Geralt happens to already know Regis, but it's likely that the player doesn't, so thankfully there's plenty of dialogue to explain everything that's going on. Regis, like the beast that you just fought, is a higher vampire, and they apparently are blood brothers in many ways, because Detlaf, the beast that you just fought, happened to save Regis after an execution. Regis explains that Detlaf isn't the type of person to just go murdering willy-nilly, and that he must have some reason he's doing this. He's not one prone to erratic behavior, even though he can become overcome with rage. Regardless, Regis and Geralt are both a little baffled as to why Detlaf would be doing this, and so they can begin their investigation looking for those very motivations. Now, I want to take a minute to explain my thoughts on Regis and his appearance in this DLC. 
Long story short, I don't like how he's introduced. I understand that he has a history with Geralt and that he's a character that is connected to both Geralt and Detlaf, but the fact that he just happens to appear and to save Geralt at the last second from being impaled is a little much for me. I personally hate coincidences in video games and especially in narratives or stories, period, whether we're talking movies, books, or plays, I always loathe it. Coincidences, in my opinion, are lazy writing, and I can't help but think that there was a better way of introducing Regis than this. But that is just a personal preference, and you may love it, you may hate it, I don't know, but I thought I'd throw it out there. So Geralt and Regis begin their investigation of Detlaf, specifically looking for his motivations behind these murders that he is committing. After all, Detlaf is a higher vampire, and he doesn't typically care about human affairs, and in many ways, he actually detests them. So the newfound duo brew a quick potion that will allow them, or at least Geralt, to see visions of Detlaf's memories somehow, and for this potion, they need the saliva of a white. Uh, a white, not a white, but yeah. Now, while we only need the white saliva for a potion that we're going to brew, there is actually a very interesting and fun fact about this woman that has been cursed and turned into a white. Now, before I get into it, I want to urge you to go and watch my Hearts of Stone video if you haven't already, because this is all going to tie together with a character from that DLC that I talked about at length. So if you haven't seen that yet, go and check it out. Links in the description. It'll be awesome. I guarantee you won't regret it, but that will help you understand what I'm about to reference. Alright, so essentially when you get to the Trastamar estate, which is where this creature seems to be hiding out in, you see a ton of spoons all over the place. They're hung from the trees, they're hung from the ceilings within the cottage, they're all over the floor, they're absolutely everywhere. You also see a table with people sitting there. They are long gone, basically skeletons at this point. They seem to have been murdered at the table while trying to eat, or at least being urged to eat. The whole thing is very, very fugazi, and it's not clear what exactly is going on. So you continue to look around, and you eventually find a cauldron. You can hide inside a cupboard and then pop out once the white shows up. Now here you're given the option, you can either just immediately attack and kill the white, or you can go and try to lift the curse. Now in order to lift the curse, you need to have looked and found everything around the house and be able to solve the riddle and basically invert the curse that was cast down upon her. For the record, it's not very complicated and it's pretty self-explanatory, especially once you give it a few seconds of thought. You really only have three options. Geralt says that he's going to sit down and eat with her because the curse said that no one would ever sit at her table ever again, so he's going to sit down and eat with her willingly of his own volition. Then you're given three options to either swap spoons, eat using the spoons, or eat without using any spoons. So, of course, you could just spam a load and just get it eventually, or you could think for 10 seconds with reference to the curse that's outlined in in the journal that you can find, or rather the item is called Stained Diary, and then you'll see that the correct option is to eat, not using the spoons. But if you choose to attack her, or if you mess up during the riddle, that's fine. You can either leave her alone, or you can go and kill her and take some stuff. It's actually a really cool arena. Like, look at this. The floor is covered in spoons, and she crawls underneath. It's actually kind of awesome. 
However, if you're able to lift the curse successfully, then you are greeted by a woman named Marlena, who was cursed and turned into a white by a mysterious beggar, which is very, very interesting. But I'm going to let the scene play out for you and let Geralt explain it, because he'll do a better job of it than I, and then we'll come back. But I do want you to listen to the music as well that's playing in the background as he explains what happened to her. So I took her by the hand and let her here. Seemed the only sensible place for her. You did the right thing, sir. She should recover quickly here. Don't worry, sir. I shall see to everything. She is safe here and in good hands. She'll soon be back on her feet. Might actually take a while. She hadn't eaten anything in over a hundred years when I found her. Horrid. Whatever brought this about? Told me her story on the way here. Her name's Marlena. She was once the very beautiful and proud heiress to the Trastamara estate. One evening, when she was holding a banquet for friends, a beggar came to her gate seeking alms. He had a bowl and a spoon with him. He sat outside her fence and waited. I've heard of the custom. An ancient rite of hospitality that obliges one to give food and drink to such a guest lest he depart hungry. To neglect the custom is to bring great misfortune down upon oneself. Marlena didn't care a whit for the old customs. She drove the man off, saying she'd rather feed the leftovers from her feast to her dogs than to give the beggar anything. The beggar then broke his spoon, cast a curse. She was beautiful, so he said she'd never wish to look at herself in the mirror again. Since she adored feasts, he swore no one would ever wish to sit and dine with her. And as she even refused him the crumbs from her table, he swore she'd never find a spoon in the world that would sate her hunger. A harsh punishment. As the astute among you, I'm sure, realized, the music playing in the background as he describes the story of what happened to Marlena is the very same theme that plays throughout every interaction Geralt has with Gunter Odim in Hearts of Stone. Another small tidbit is that Geralt points out that before this woman was cursed, the beggar that actually did the cursing snapped his spoon in half, which is the very same thing that Gunter Odim does when he summons the storm to save Geralt from the ship. He also plays around with the spoon multiple times throughout the rest of Hearts of Stone if you watch everything he does. Point being, the person that cursed Marlena, the beggar in this story, was indeed Gunter Odim. And according to some journal entries, it's actually hinted at that this beggar also sold mirrors earlier in his life, again matching Gunter Odim. So it's a small fact, it's a tidbit right there, and of course the story reminds me of Beauty and the Beast and the tales that inspired that story, but it was a fun detail nonetheless, and I'm glad that they included it. So no matter what path you take, you acquire the necessary ingredients for the potion that you need, you brew it, and then you get all these visions. Now these visions suggest that Detlaf, the beast we're hunting, is not necessarily internally convicted to commit these murders, but rather he has some urge to do it, or he's being blackmailed in some way. He doesn't seem to want to do what he's doing. So after following some clues that we get from these visions, we end up in a toy shop that Detlaf apparently occupies, where we find a letter that shows Detlaf is being blackmailed to commit the murders. His 
love, Renoued, has supposedly been kidnapped and is being held ransom. And only once Detlef has committed these five murders will she be released. Now, this is one of my issues with the narrative of Blood and Wine. It seems that the writers really wanted these plot twists or these moments where you just sat back and was like, what? Wait, how did that happen? And sometimes they do achieve it. At least once in my playthrough was I kind of taken aback by something. But everything else was predictable because once you start expecting a plot twist, they become very, very easy to guess. So by the end of the expansion, when the big plot twist comes around, I had called it three hours in-game earlier. It was no surprise to me that that happened because I had been conditioned to expect those very plot twists. Now, on a smaller level, I also really don't like the fact that there's no clear-cut villain in the entirety of this expansion, at least until the very, very end, even at which point it's kind of muddied, and the villain that comes about is sort of sympathetic, and some people will choose to side with that individual as opposed to Anna Henrietta, who you initially sided with. In Hearts of Stone, and even the core game of The Witcher 3, Wild Hunt, there was a clear-cut villain in both. In the core game, it was the Wild Hunt. It's in the frickin' title. It's clear who the bad guy is, and there were smaller opponents and enemies that caused you issues and troubles as you went through, but there was always this overarching and omnipresent force of the Wild Hunt that you had to constantly be aware of and ready to tackle at any moment. In Hearts of Stone, it was, of course, Gunter O'Dim, who we just spoke about, who is this also very omnipresent, omnipowerful, supernatural force that we have to be careful of. But in this Blood and Wine expansion, they seem to be very, very fragile and frail individuals, and it keeps going back and forth. And by the end of the expansion, the bad guy, it's something that you never even had to really uh, come into conflict with. You just sort of sit back and you resolve it or have everything collapse down based on a couple of dialogue choices, which is something so obvious that it had to have been intentional. It can't have been an accident. But on a sort of game design philosophical level, I happen to dislike it. However, I could see how somebody else would absolutely love the fact that the story and the narrative is more vague, and the fact that there is no clear-cut bad guy could be perceived and interpreted as really well-done writing, because there has to be a bad guy, but everybody is the bad guy all at the same time. Even the good guys aren't all that good, and the bad guys aren't all that bad. That could be seen as good writing, and I can understand that, but for me personally, I would have preferred one clear-cut villain. Now, the reason I'm being very, very vague when I'm talking about the villain at the end of the game or the big plot point is because I don't want to go much further than this in the narrative. This is meant to sort of set up the rest of it, and after this, you go and you pursue, and this is when the story actually starts to get really interesting. So I'm going to stop with the summation of the narrative there. So if you haven't played it yet and you were just trying to get a feel for it, go play it now if it's interesting to you. Come back, watch the rest of the video at that point, but I don't see the need for me to spoil all of those little things. What I can say is that the plot twists that come in later in the expansion I saw coming from a mile away, and that was a little disappointing. Now, narratively speaking, on a very broad level, the pacing seems to be all over the place in this expansion. Many times I thought to myself, oh, well, 
this is it. This is the end of the expansion. It's the end of the main story. I can go start working on the side quests. But no, it, I was both surprised and disappointed when nothing was resolved. But somehow the expansion and the game managed to pull all these little scraps together and put on another act time and time again. I was probably juked out of thinking that the expansion was over four times over the course of this expansion. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's probably a bad thing because I wasn't able to tell when the game and when the story was going to resolve itself and it just seemed to be dragging on and on and on and it got a little exhausting near the end but some people might love it because it's more Witcher and who doesn't want that. Now, a possible reason as to why this pacing is so off and why the expansion and the story doesn't seem to quite end as punctually as Hearts of Stone did could simply be explained by the fact that Blood and Wine is CD Projekt Red's final foray into the Witcher world, at least for a very, very long time. They're saying goodbye to Geralt and to the series that has put them on the map. And so naturally, I can understand why they wouldn't want to prematurely end Geralt's story for all of these players that have stuck with him for all these years. But at the same time, I think there is a limit and it did drag on just a little bit. Now, the last thing that I will talk about with regards to the narrative before we get into the gameplay is actually how the narrative directly impacts a person's gameplay. Now, what am I talking about? Well, when you're playing through an RPG, a game that expects you to become immersed in a story and role play accordingly, you will always have to balance out the urge to continue the main quest, the story that you're being urged to participate in, and this other side of it where you want to go and explore and just run around the world and do whatever the hell you want to do. Now, the core of The Witcher 3 also suffered from this very problem. There's a sense of urgency to finding Ciri. She's in trouble. So what did I do when I played the game initially? Well, I did just what Geralt would do. I rushed through the entire main quest to try and save Ciri as quick as possible. Because if I just wandered around for days on end, potentially Ciri could get injured. Or in that last moment when she needed help, I wouldn't be there. Now, my brain is telling me also that it is is a video game after all. And if I were to go and do something else, the main quest would still be there. But I'm always trying to immerse myself fully in these moments and in these stories. And whenever I try to do that, I end up almost ruining the experience because I felt the urgency to complete the main quest. But that made it so by the time I got to all the side content, I was so higher leveled than all of those quests and all the characters in those quests that they weren't fun at all. And unfortunately, Blood and Wine suffers from the very same thing. It gives you this sense of urgency where this vampire is going around killing knights and we know that there's another target that's coming very, very soon. So naturally, you're going to want to rush and try to find this monster or this beast and end the killing spree as quickly as possible. Now, there is a point in the main story where you can actually convince Detlaf to stop killing people while you investigate his blackmailers, but that comes w pretty far into the main story and it's a little bit late. Most people are already committed to it and have already missed out on a lot of the side content that is exclusive to the first half of the DLC. So this whole urgency thing I think needs to be addressed and I think Skyrim did it very well where they didn't try to force you 
you into their narrative where they said, just go explore, do whatever. You are the Dovahkiin, but whatever. The dragons are coming. Not a big deal, though. Not many people are dying, so you do you. But again, we get into the whole discussion of narrative versus adventure-based RPGs. So it may just be a reality of games like The Witcher 3 that they're always going to have this balance between urgency and leisurely gameplay. And perhaps there is no solution and it's just a reality of playing these types of games. But I thought I would point it out that I did miss out on many side quests on my first run through Blood and Wine simply because... I felt this urgency to rush through the main quest. So if you're a player who's very focused on immersion through the narrative and you let that affect your gameplay and dictate your gameplay, then that's something that you should be aware of. That's all I have to say about the narrative. Overall, it's well done. It gets the job done, but it does tend to really drag on. And the sense of urgency I felt made me miss out on much of the side content, which in many cases is the best content in these expansions and in the Witcher 3 period. As with most expansions to games, you can't expect much of the core gameplay to be altered that much because then it wouldn't be the same game. It would be a sequel, a follow-up, a full-on alteration. And so nothing is mandatorily changed in blood and wine but you are given some optional things to do or to occupy your time with that can make your overall experience better or easier depending on how you approach it for instance you're given a vineyard that you can upgrade as you see fit which will allow you to have a steady place where you can rest in your own bed which gives you certain boosts and perks you can also have fresh food available there you can also have a workstation where you can work on armor all in the same place which is really, really cool. You can also dye Witcher armor to whatever color you want, and these stains and dyes are only available in Toussaint, so once you get this DLC and you go exploring a little bit, doing some side quests, you'll acquire plenty of dyes so that you can actually experiment and change and, and really make Geralt your own. Another mechanic that's been added are mutations. Now, these are acquired through a side quest that when I first played the expansion, I completely ignored, and I was able to get through the expansion on the second hardest difficulty without much problem or difficulty or issue, so I would say that it's not strictly necessary. But if I had focused on this and really tried to level up with it in mind, I think the rest of the expansion probably would have been much easier. Now, a lot of people will say that these mutations aren't even necessarily meant strictly for blood and wine, but rather they excel and really come out in full force during New Game Plus, which is something that I have not tried, but I certainly would be open to it, and I can definitely see how that would help uh, overall increase the playability of the game. Other than that, there isn't much else. Everything else that's been altered is a change in approach or overall layout to the game as you go through it. As I previously stated, uh, enemy layouts are changed a little bit, so it's not as many fodder enemies, but rather uh, a stricter focus on larger single enemies that will take more time and effort to get through, which I personally really, really enjoy, but that might just be the Soulsborne fan in me coming out. But even those games have lots of fodder. Don't get me wrong, there's still lots of low-level soldiers that you can hack and slash your way through, but there is at least 
visibly a conceited effort to try and give more large enemies that are more difficult to have complicated move sets and allow you to really take advantage of those mutation systems and all of the new gear that you're going to be getting. Now, in terms of difficulty, the expansion isn't what I would consider crushing, but there are a few fights that really push you to the limits. And if you don't have the proper gear loadout, or if you've been getting distracted and haven't been leveling up properly, then you're going to have a real hard time with it. The main fight that comes to mind to demonstrate this is the optional final boss battle, quote-unquote, with Detlaf at the end of the expansion if you choose to go and punish him for his crimes. This is a three-phase fight, and lordy lordy is it difficult. The first phase is pretty straightforward and easy, but the second phase consists of a pretty consistent moveset that isn't too complicated, but can throw out massive heaps of damage, especially with the bat strike that he can throw out. And the third and final phase is just weird. You get enveloped inside of some sort of cranium, and you are hacking at these little sacks. It actually really reminded me of the Great Wood fight in Dark Souls 3 with that weird gimmick of slashing at his porous balls. It was just weird. And that's the same vibe I got from this. It seemed like they took a lot of inspiration from that. I don't know if I love it or hate it, but what I do know is that it was a very tough fight. And the last thing I'd like to discuss in terms of gameplay is, of course, how does your gameplay affect the narrative? We compared how the narrative affects the gameplay, but now how does the gameplay affect the narrative? And this is something that I think is very important to discuss when you're looking at a quote-unquote narrative RPG where your choices supposedly matter and have a lasting impact. Now, The Witcher 3 is not some big thing like Untold Dawn where every tiny choice has an impact, but there are several crucial and key moments that basically stand as a fork in the road and once you make that decision that's where you're going and there's no turning back and it's no different in blood and wine there comes a point when Regis asks you what you want to do about Detlef, and you have the option to essentially show him mercy or to punish him, what I would argue would be justly, but some people might argue that it wasn't his fault to begin with, blah blah blah, whatever your argument is, you have these two major options. Now, if you choose the merciful one, you have two to three potential endings that you can get, but if you choose to play hardball, you will always get the bad, quote-unquote, ending, which is a little frustrating to me, but that's just the way that it is. Now, I do want to say, the first time I played this expansion, I felt legitimate regret over my decision. I chose to play hardball with Detlef, so I got the quote-unquote bad ending, and I honestly felt terrible. I wanted to go back and change it. There, I, I don't want to get into any specific spoilers necessarily, but all around the city, a mood has shifted, and there's a very visible change in how the world looks at you and thinks about itself, and it's honestly bit jarring when you're used to the chipper, happy, chivalric nature of Toussaint before that. Now I'll close off with the gameplay section by saying this. I've previously said many times that Blood and Wine is a gameplay-focused expansion, whereas Hearts of Stone is a narrative-focused expansion, and I still stand by that. Blood and Wine is built around giving the player more things to do in terms of gameplay, how they approach quests, how they approach combat. It gives you more tools, but it doesn't require you to use those tools in order to be successful when going through its main story. 
Now, I don't want to say that the fact that they don't force the player to try out these new gameplay mechanics is a bad thing, but I would have honestly appreciated it if the mutation system were integrated more directly with the main quest, so even if you were trying to be completely immersed and race through it to try to stop this monster that's causing so many issues, even then you could still get the mutations and level up with it, committing those skill points as you went through. But it's a small nitpicky thing, and it really probably doesn't matter that much in the long run, especially if you haven't played it yet. Now you're aware that that is something that you can do, and I recommend that you do it right as you get to Toussaint. And so in summation, I think that the gameplay tweaks honestly do help with New Game Plus and for players that are looking to go on Death March and really challenge themselves. But for the average player who's just going to go through it to try and have another experience with The Witcher, have a new engaging story that they can get engaged with and immersed in, it's not going to change that much. And people are still going to continue playing it the way they did before, which I'm sure was the intent all along. Long. I don't think CD Projekt Red was trying to rewrite something that was not broken. I think they realized they had a formula that worked and were willing to stick by it, but they also wanted to provide some new things for players that were looking for that as well. And so in closing, I can absolutely recommend Blood and Wine to any fan of The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt or of Hearts of Stone, but it's important to realize that you're not getting the same package as you did with Hearts of Stone. This expansion tries to do something else, and in my opinion, succeeds with it, offering new gameplay mechanics that you can choose to take up or you can choose to ignore completely and you'll have a good time either which way. But it's best to go into it with the knowledge of these systems so that you aren't caught flat-footed halfway through. Now many people have also asked me which of these two expansions do I prefer and would I recommend above the other. Now, do I prefer Blood and Wine with its 30 hours of content, lots of new things to do, an entirely new setting, or do I prefer Hearts of Stone with its 10 hours of gameplay and really interesting characters but nothing new in terms of gameplay and personally for me I much prefer Hearts of Stone. I had a good time with Blood and Wine but the characters just weren't as memorable and didn't grab me the same way that Vladimir, the same way that Shani or that Olgird or Gunter actually hooked me and those characters are never leaving my brain even if I wanted them to they're stuck in there. But regardless, if you haven't played Blood and Wine yet, you absolutely should. It is a great time and gives us the option and the ability to play more of one of the best games ever created. But that's about all I have to say. I really did try to keep this video much, much shorter than the previous one I did on Hearts of Stone, which ended up being just as long as the video on the entire base game. So I'm really trying to keep this one concise. Hopefully you liked it. If you have any constructive criticism, I'd love to hear it. And if you have any games that you would like me to do this for in the future, also leave those comments and feel free to share those opinions and thoughts on Twitter or on the Discord server. Links to all of that down below. And if you really liked what you saw in this video, then please consider supporting me on Patreon. I'm a broke college student and every penny helps to justify all the tens of hours that I spend doing this. But with all that said, thank you all for watching. I love you all, and I'll see you in the next video. Peace out.